Chapter 18 of 18 Months' Imprisonment by Donald Shaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 18 The Outer World. The unfortunate contretemps that had indirectly associated me with the dismissal of a warder caused me to be looked upon for some time by his confreres with considerable distrust. It was generally understood, however, that I was not a man that could be bullied with impunity, and would unhesitatingly have reported any attempt of the kind. I attribute this diagnosis of my character to my bearing from the first. I made it a rule to be scrupulously courteous to the humblest turnkey if he showed an inclination to treat me civilly, whilst I ignored the position of those who attempted to hector over me, and convinced them by my manner that I looked on them as my inferiors. When I reflect on the bearing of the various officials towards other prisoners, I am at a loss to understand how I was permitted the latitude I was. I can only attribute it to that moral and indefinable effect certain men of birth and education, and naturally arrogant in disposition, do and always will exercise, no matter how temporarily circumstanced, over their inferiors. This bearing asserted itself without my knowledge, and I had my likes and dislikes from the highest to the lowest. Thus I liked and respected the governor, and ignored his deputy. I liked one chaplain, and cordially despised the other. I liked and venerated the kind old surgeon, which would be exaggerating my feelings regarding his assistant. None of my antipathies could probably instance any absolute case against me, yet they were respectively aware of my estimate of their merits. To remove this feeling of distrust amongst the turnkeys was by no means easy. I had to watch my opportunity to get into conversation, and then carefully to smuggle in a word in season. This necessary formula was not unattended with risk, and I had to discover the disposition of my man, and not say the wrong word in the wrong place. My knowledge of human nature gave me a considerable advantage in these negotiations. It was like playing blind man's bluff with one eye exposed, and I soon had the measure of every official in the prison. Some nuts I admit to have found very difficult to crack, but they eventually yielded to treatment. Others were hopeless cases, and some I labelled dangerous, and carefully avoided. I had, however, attained my object, and wherever I went or wherever I was located, I was always within measurable distance of one ministering angel, and often two. The principal cause of my unbroken success may be attributed to my having no confidants. My right hand literally knew not what my left was doing, and Jones, the turnkey, who lived in fear and trembling that Brown would suspect his trafficking with me, was a source of hourly anxiety to Brown, who dreaded Jones getting wind of his kindly interest in my affairs. I always assured these respective worthies that they had nothing to fear from me if they would only exercise ordinary discretion on their own parts, and as I was above the weakness of carrying about a faggot of pencils or cigars, it is hardly to be wondered at that diplomacy triumphed. Through one channel or another I heard everything that was going on, and was on more than one occasion amused by having repeated to me the special cautions that were issued regarding me. The deputy governor was no friend of mine. Indeed, I should be doing him an injustice if I omitted to state that he disliked me as cordially as I did him. He was of that pronounced military type, associated in my mind with the 5th West Indian Regiment, 
and suggested the idea of having been promoted from the adjutancy of that distinguished corps to a company in a non-purchase regiment during the Cardwellite era. A switch, and an almost brimless pot-hat, worn on one side, completed the picture of this typical sabreur. He apparently took a considerable interest in my affairs, and frequently asked questions, and gave wholesome advice to the turnkeys regarding their intercourse with me. "'Have nothing to do with that man,' was the burden of his song, all of which was invariably repeated to me. His duties assimilated very much with those of a garrison quartermaster, and he was supposed to poke about and discover dirt in impossible places. Occasionally, however, they resembled those of a boatswain in H.M. Navy, as, for example, at the flogging of garroters and the birching of little boys when he counted the strokes. I had to be careful of this individual, for I am confident he had his suspicions about my little games, but it was the old story of the ironclad charging the outrigger, and with all the facilities at his disposal he was no match for me in a matter of finesse. To such a state of perfection had I now brought my arrangements, that everything of interest was at once known to me, and the hanging of Dr. Lamson, Prince Leopold's wedding, and the bombardment of Alexandria, all assisted in their turn to relieve the monotony of my existence. Nor was my system confined to gloomy Clerkenwell, but penetrated into the sanctity of the more fashionable Belgravia and conversations of peculiar interest to me, that took place at table or in the privacy of the closet, and that I had a motive for hearing, was repeated to me within a day, with a minuteness of detail that would astonish the gossipers. This is no idle boast, as documents and dates in my possession can and may testify. In short, I was in telephonic communication with the outer world, registered number 594 but a master-hand was required to keep this huge machinery in order, which no sooner was it removed than it crumbled to pieces. Within a week after my final departure, papers began to be picked up, and a scientific elaboration, incapable of detection, was degraded to the level and shared the same fate as the commonest pickpocket's ruse. The moral that is to be gleaned from all this is, if you wish a thing done well, do it yourself. I trust the sequel to my departure above narrated may afford a melancholy satisfaction to those interested, and convince them that no extra precautions are necessary to prevent the repetition of these innovations. The rules in force are amply sufficient for the ordinary prisoner. But my constitution, suffering from this severe strain, and assisted considerably by fever and ague, began to give way, and led to a change in my everyday life. In short, I was ill and admitted into hospital. As I ascended the stairs that led from the Worcester wards, I had the consolation of feeling I should not be forgotten. I had indeed left my mark. I had crippled half the prison. There are many abuses that might be changed with advantage, and which I cannot do better than point out, in hopes that somebody in authority will read, mark, and inwardly digest them. On each cell door is a card setting forth your name, sentence, and full particulars. This placarding of one's name is surely useless, as one is never called by it, and the only object it appears to serve is to enable prisoners to discover all about one another. My cell was once situated on the high road to the chapel, and every malefactor en route to worship made it his business to master my history. This surely is unfair, and hardly contemplated by the authorities. If it is absolutely essential that one's name is to be placarded, 
Why not inside instead of outside the door, as was the custom before the government took over the prisons? Too much at present is left to the turnkeys. They are, indeed, the channel of communication and the only official with whom the ordinary prisoner comes in contact. The chief warder deputes details to the principal warders of divisions, who in their turn confide them to the warders of wards, who again leave the carrying out to the turnkeys of flights. It is not fair that so much should be left to these assistants, which, despite any assertion to the contrary, is the case, and who, though counting in their ranks many highly respectable men, have also some desperate rascals, vindictive, deceitful, and utterly unfit for any discretionary powers, and who would stick at no degree of brutality if capable of being indulged in with impunity. The use of the same baths by prisoners and men previous to medical examination cannot be too strongly deprecated. That a clean man should be compelled to risk contagion with one suffering from itch or covered with vermin is as filthy as it is disgraceful. With all the space at their disposal, the wonder is a swimming bath has never commended itself. Every warder in charge of a ward has a prisoner allotted to him, who performs such necessary duties as cleaning his office and assisting him in his multifarious returns. These men are generally selected from the clerk or tradesman class, and have great facilities for knowing everything that passes through the office. I have found, indeed, that they know and hear a great deal too much. Thus a descriptive return containing every particular about one from one's youth up, and supposed to be a confidential document, is carefully studied by these cleaners, and facts likely to be of general interest, especially about celebrities, go the round of the prison. These documents should either not be in the warder's charge, or, if so, should be carefully locked up. In my opinion, they would be more appropriately assigned to the care of the principal warders of divisions. These cleaners, if dishonestly or greedily inclined, appropriate considerably more than their share of the daily rations. In one ward I seldom or ever got my supply of Monday bacon, which had either been filched or bitten in half, and as the original supply does not exceed the proportions of a postage stamp, it can ill afford this wholesale reduction. I cannot leave the subject of warders without bearing my testimony to their excellency as a class. I especially refer to those in charge of wards, and not to their washerwomen and plumbers and glaziers' confreres. The multiplicity of returns they have to render daily, the alterations, however trivial, that are constantly occurring and have to be noted, and the serious consequences attending the slightest error or omission, all combine to make their duties and responsibilities more arduous than any class of men I have seen. Their pay for this, moreover, is so small, twenty-nine shillings a week, with a gradual rise, that many otherwise excellent men shrink from accepting promotion. The colour sergeants of the army might learn a lesson from these warders, and if the descriptive return, in use, and which supplies every information, was substituted for the ponderous ledgers, small books, defaulter sheets, etc., as used in the army, it would come like the Waverley pen as a blessing and boon to sergeants and men. End of chapter 18